Great to see you. It's good to be back here at 502 for the first time in a long time. Yeah, as Richard says, I've been away on, on sabbatical the last three months, so if you have started coming to the church in that time we haven't met before, hope we can meet at the end of the service. It's my wife, Grace. We've both, neither of us been around these last three months, uh, but good to be back. Good to be back at 502. What a lovely morning. What beautiful people. What a, what a happy day. Especially Nathaniel, looking even more beautiful than you did three months ago. Just let me look at you for a moment. Admire. It's good to see. It's good to see. Right. Uh, before I went away, I tried to explain something of what sabbaticals are and why the pastors here take sabbaticals every so often. And uh, explain that taking sabbatical isn't just about going on an extended holiday. I did have a, a couple of weeks of holiday while I was off, but uh, most of it really is a different kind of work. And I explained how a sabbatical is, is really, fundamentally, it's about a test of faith in God's sovereignty and God's grace. That was the original understanding when God gave the people of Israel a command to keep Sabbath. It was about testing, tr- uh, would they trust in his sovereignty and would they t- trust in his grace? So uh, in that kind of society, in agricultural society, this is very practical. It's sunny today, beautiful day. Tomorrow it might rain, the crops are ready to harvest. Are we not going to harvest the crops because we're trusting that God's can keep us, that God is sovereign and God is gracious and that he can keep us. So that's what Sabbath is really about and uh, the last few months have really been an exercise in in pushing into that, of learning more about God's sovereignty and grace and trusting God to provide for us in every circumstance. We had some time away as a team last week which was absolutely fantastic and the team, I showed a few pictures to the team of my time and they thought it'd be helpful to show show some pictures to to you as well. So uh, have we got those, Angie? She's nodding. First one up then please. So I uh, started the sabbatical at Quar Abbey on the Isle of Wight, got on my bike, cycled across to Lymington, got on the ferry, cycled to Ride, or near Ride where Quar Abbey is. This is a Benedictine monastery, so very different from my normal kind of spiritual life, very different setting from going into the office up at Alder Road and being with Richard and the other guys during the week, not that kind of setting at all. So there with the monks, seven services a day, starting at 5.30 in the morning, going through to 8 in the evening. But a really beautiful setting. You can see we had that fantastic weather in May. Uh, and uh, I actually found it really helpful just to come into the presence of God, to be in a place where it was very, very peaceful in every sense, and a wonderful way to recenter myself starting the sabbatical and get into God's presence. Did spend quite a bit of time doing some stuff in the house, built a new kitchen, poured my own concrete worktops, you can come around and inspect them, check out the imperfections. Uh, if you want me to do them in your house, I won't. <laughs> Much too stressful. And then the centre of the time of being sabbatical really was two weeks I spent in the Pyrenees. I went into the section of the GR10 path, which is a, a path which runs from Hendai on the Atlantic coast, border between France and Spain, and goes to Banyuls. Uh, on the Mediterranean coast, just on the border of France and Spain, that side. I didn't have time or energy to do the whole thing, but I started near Andorra and walked for two weeks on that path in spectacular scenery, like this kind of mountain scenery, and staying in mountain refuges most of the time, where the sleeping accommodation was a bit like this, so nice and cosy. Uh, thankfully, on that particular night, I didn't have anybody right next to me. It was a little bit close for comfort. But uh, So that was a very different kind of experience and was actually really 
wonderful in terms of uh, prayer and connecting with God. And there's a whole number of different things I felt the Lord speak to me over those two weeks, some of which will come out this morning, actually, and other things which we're planning to feed into our church program over the next 12 months, things I felt God speak to me about how we should lead and teach here. So that was a, a great time. We also had lots of t- stuff going on domestically, two of our daughters graduated. Susie graduated from Brighton and Nancy from Newcastle on the same day. Can you believe it? So I went to Brighton to be with Susie and Grace went to Newcastle to be with Nancy. Couldn't get much further apart in in England, could you? Uh, But lots of family stuff going on. And then towards the end of the sabbatical, I got back on my bike, cycled down to Paul Ferry Terminal, got on the ferry, went to Cherbourg and then cycled down through Normandy and Brittany. The rest of the family met me for a few days in Brittany, and then I got back on my bike and cycled back. And again, that was a wonderful time just to be with the Lord, to enjoy him and his creation. And also it meant I had some opportunity to meet with Samuel Alonso, who I think most of you won't even know now because it's been a long time since Samuel and Veronique were with us. But Samuel pastors a church in Cherbourg, and we uh, have had quite a lot to do with each other over the years, but not so much recently. So it's great to reconnect with him. We're like twins. <laughs> Even wearing the same glasses, it's just bizarre. Uh, My French brother. Um, But really encouraging to meet with someone and hear about what's happening in church planting. When when, uh, uh, Richard and I and and John went over to Cherbourg years ago to try and see what was happening in France, if anything was happening there, and we managed to connect with Samuel. And at that time, his was the only really kind of live church in that whole region for miles and miles and miles. But uh, he heads up church planting for the Baptist Federation in that region and currently working with 10 church plants in Brittany and Normandy, which is is really encouraging. So we're looking to do a bit more of them again. Um, Might be sending some of our young people across to do some things with their young people. And uh, we need to keep praying for France, such a close neighbor, uh, but in so much spiritual need. So Sebastian was good, certainly some challenges, but also lots of blessing. Uh, Before I went away, one of the things I urged... Gateway Church was remember your priestly call. We have a priestly call to pray, to worship, and to witness. And my urging was that you would do that in the three months that I was away, as we should do it always. And what we're doing now, our Sunday gatherings are actually a really key part of that. They're a place where we obviously do gather together to pray and to worship. And, and, and what we're doing is itself a witness to the world of our faith in Jesus Christ. And the key part of that is coming under the word of God. While I was in the Pyrenees, I felt the Lord speak to me about this in a particular way. There are uh, signs up in the Pyrenees warning about um, these big guard dogs called Patu. There should be a picture of this, Angie. Um, And these big uh, dogs uh, live with the flocks. They're actually born in the sheepfold. And there are lots of bears and wolves in the Pyrenees now, and the dogs protect the flocks from predators. And there's these warning signs up, what, you do, what to do if you come across a flock of sheep with a patu, because they can be very dangerous to humans as well as to bears and wolves and other things. So you have to, have to be careful not to antagonize them. And, and one morning I saw a shepherd leading his sheep, a very biblical picture, leading his sheep, and by his heel was one of these patu, one of these big Pyrenean mountain dogs. But behind the flock were a couple of border collies doing what border collies do, which is keeping the flock together, making sure they went in the right way. And I just had this phrase come into my mind that that's how the Word of God, the picture of how the Word of God operates, that the Word of God protects us and the Word of God also directs us. And what I'm hoping this morning as we come into the Word of God is that God would again protect us through His Word and He would direct us 
through his word. So, Father, we do pray that. Come to you. Jesus, thank you amongst us by the Holy Spirit. And pray that as we open your word now, that you would protect us. You'd fence us around in those areas where we, need to, where we could be in danger. And that you would direct us in the ways that we should go. That we would worship and witness and pray as we ought and walk in the light that you have given to us. Amen. Okay, we're in John, John chapter 11. This is the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And this story happens about halfway through the Gospel of John. And we're also about halfway through our teaching series in John. We began this series in May, continuing it through to the end of the year. So this is the center story of the book. It's also, in many ways, the central story of the Gospel of John because this was the most remarkable miracle that Jesus performed before his own resurrection, the death of and resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead for four days, Jesus speaks, Lazarus comes back to life. It's the most remarkable miracle that Jesus does. And so it's the central story of the Gospel of John. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, because it's quite long. I'd encourage you to do that when you get home. But what we see in this story, what this story does, is it pulls together everything that's happened in the Gospel of John so far. Really, the, the first half of the Gospel of John is all claims about who Jesus is. That begins with the prologue, the first verses of the Gospel of John, a description of Jesus, the Word, the light, coming into the world. And then as soon as Jesus steps into view, it's all about who am I. It's about test of authority. It's about Jesus saying that he's the bread of life. It's Jesus saying that he's going to pour out living water. It's, it's lots of conflict with those who oppose him over questions of authority. So the whole story, the whole, the whole first, first half of John is who is Jesus and this story of Lazarus really pulls that together. And then the story of Lazarus also propels us into what's going to come next. Because we get past the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, and then we're into the Easter story. The rest of the Gospel of John is really taken up with the events leading up to and taking place in Easter week. So this story is the crucial pivot on which really the whole Gospel hangs. So let's read the first six verses. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he, st he stayed where he was two more days. Some things to highlight from this introduction. First is about the, the location where this story happens. It happens in a village called Bethany, which was very close to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' claim, what we've seen in the first 10 chapters of John, is that Jesus is the true king. And uh, Jerusalem is key to that. We started our service. We started with Psalm 89 this morning. The Psalm 89 says, I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm 
for all generations. God promises to David an eternal throne, and that throne literally was in Jerusalem. And Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, is the one who's proclaiming that he is the rightful inheritor of David's throne. He is David's greater son. He is the greater David. So Jerusalem is really significant. It's meant to be the city of the king. And once we get through the story of Lazarus, get to John chapter 12, the story we come to is the story of the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the crowd saying, yes, this really is the king. But of course, that claim to kingship is immediately contested and opposed. And so what Jerusalem means, what it represents, is Jerusalem represents a place of conflict. What Jerusalem means in the end is the cross. That's where Jesus is headed. And so the fact that this story takes place in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, very close to the Mount of Olives, is a sign that's meant to point us towards the cross, ultimately. Something else that we see in this story are these two sisters, Martha and her sister Mary. And uh, we might think, well, this story is primarily about Lazarus, because Lazarus is the one who gets sick, then dies, then is raised to new life. The story is about Lazarus, which, yes, of course it is. But really, in many ways, the story is more about Martha and her sister. They're, they're, I think, really the, the star characters of the story. And Interestingly, they're the ones who we know more about. We actually know very little about Lazarus, but from this story and some other stories in the Gospels, we actually know quite a bit more about Martha and about Mary. So this is a story about the two sisters. <coughs> and what we see in them is a genuine faith. They, they really believe in Jesus. I'm out of preaching practice. I'm doing it twice, I'm going to sputter. We see in them a, genu- a, genuine, a genuine faith, but a faith which is, which is at this moment troubled because they're facing trouble because Lazarus, their brother, is ill. We also see their genuine love, love for Jesus. And, and that in itself also raises questions for us. The love that Mary and Martha have for Jesus is costly. And so in the introduction, it says Martha and Mary, and there's a bracket, and it says Mary who poured expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of John, we don't actually get told that story until the next chapter. John chapter 12, we're told a story about Martha anointing Jesus with this very, very costly perfume, which happens just before the triumphal entry. It's all part of the story, all part of the process of heading towards the cross. What Mary, what Mary does as she anoints Jesus unknowingly is prepare him for his death and his burial. But John just gives us a heads up here. This is the Mary who anoints Jesus with a costly perfume. And so we see that Mary and Martha love Jesus with a costly love. They've got real faith, real love, but that is being tested by circumstances. And then something else we see in this story is that Jesus loves them. And so when Martha finds that her brother is sick, she sends a letter to Jesus, not saying just, Lazarus, your friend is ill, but saying, Lord, The one you love is ill. The one you love. And in verse 5, it says that Jesus loved them. Jesus really loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And isn't that good to know? Isn't that the thing that we most need to know today? You've got these specific particular individuals, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Not, 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 Not abstract, not composite characters, but real physical flesh and blood people in a particular place in their village at Bethany. 
And Jesus knows them and he loves them. And isn't that what we need to know today? That you, personally, in your place, are known and loved by Jesus. If we get nothing else out of this story, this is what I want us to get out of it today. To know that Jesus loves you. You, in your place. It's what we need to know. So this, this introduction to the story, which is very personal, very intimate, very human, very beautiful, actually, for me, raises a whole number of questions. And of course, for us, we, we know the outcome of the story. We know what happens at the end of the chapter, that Lazarus is raised to life, that Jesus stands before the tomb. We get to verse 39, and Jesus says, roll away the stone, take the stone away. We know that happens. But at this point in the story, the first few verses, the introduction, the sisters and the disciples don't know how the story is going to end. For them, there aren't any answers at this point. It's all questions. And these are questions which I think we're meant to ask as well. And the first and the obvious question is, why Jesus, if you love Lazarus and Martha and Mary, why do you stay two more days? Why do you stay two more days? You get the message from the sisters Surely it should be he loved them, so as soon as he heard the news, he got going. That's not what it says. It says he loved them, so he stayed two more days. And that raises the question, doesn't it? Why does Jesus linger? Why doesn't he go? Because when we get into trouble, when I get into trouble, I want rescue to come fast. Don't want to have to wait for it. If you dial 999, if you're in trouble, you want the ambulance to come quickly. And obviously it's been a big issue in our context recently, the excessive ambulance delays for all the reasons that's taken place. And there's been all these horror stories about people waiting for hours, sometimes even days for an ambulance to come. And we know that's wrong. We know that's not how it should be because if you're waiting, if you're in need, if you need rescue and you're having to wait, that causes anxiety and stress and worry to build. And it means that there are worse health outcomes. If you're not treated quickly, that can mean that things don't turn out as well as they should. And it can even mean death. And so we want quick rescue, not delayed response. And so Martha asked a question of Jesus. And the question really is, what kept you? But she actually does that through more of an, of an observation or a statement. In, in verse 21, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And that, that's an observation. It's a statement. Actually, it's a statement of faith, a statement of trust. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You could have stopped this. But of course, the implied question there is, why didn't you? If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But you weren't here. Why? What kept you? And isn't that the kind of statement and the kind of question that we make as well? Martha's faith is genuine. She believes that Jesus could have kept Lazarus from death. And the genuineness of her faith is actually made even more sharp by what she says next. Verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Lazarus has been dead for four days, but even now... God will give you whatever you ask. Now, that is commendable faith. And I would suggest to us this morning, that's the kind of faith that you and I need as well. The kind of faith that says, even now, Lord, I believe that God will give you whatever 
you ask. Faith even when faith seems impossible. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and when Jesus says, take away the stone, Martha says, but he's been dead four days. And in the old King James Version, it says that she says, but Lord, he stinketh. Because Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, he stinketh. And what we see here is he stinketh faith. Even now, Lord, he stinketh, but God can give you whatever you ask. And what we need is, even now, he stinketh faith. That whatever stinketh in your life, and for some of you this is, probably feels very real, that there's, it feels like there's an area of your life which might feel like a grave with a stone across it, and you don't even want to open it because it stinks. It stinks. Don't dare open it. The odor will be overwhelming. It'll be horrific. It'll be horrible. What we need in those circumstances is he stinketh faith, even now faith, even now. Jesus, you can do anything. That's the kind of faith that Martha had. That's the kind of faith that we need. The problem is that so often we get stuck at the where were you question. And we've all had questions. I'm sure if you've been a follower of Jesus for any time at all, we've all had questions about the Lord's timing. This, this Sunday is actually a significant anniversary for us. This, this Sunday last year was the first Sunday that we knew that we had been victims of a huge financial fraud that... A couple of days earlier that week, Richard had said to me, it's all gone. Every penny from our accounts is gone. All our regular money, all the money that we were saving up to pay for the building project at Alder Road, all gone. And on that Sunday, this Sunday last year, I was standing here preaching from 2 Corinthians about prepare for trouble. Now that was a stinketh moment. He stinketh. The stinketh was strong at that moment. And God's timing isn't our timing. I'd have liked it to be sorted out straight away. Let's, the money's gone one day, let's have it back the next day. That's not what happened. It took three months or so. But by God's grace, he rescued us and the money came back. Hallelujah. What we need is he stinketh faith. Even now, faith. Have to get, have to get past the where were you question. The, 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 thing is, the thing is that the Lord tends to be right on time. Yeah. It's just usually not my timing. And so what I need and what you need is even now faith. He stinketh faith. And so what this story does, it makes us, it makes us face the question. Christianity isn't meant to be all fuzzy and nice and avoiding the hard questions. No, it make, this story forces us to face the hard question. God, where are you? In my moment of crisis, Jesus, where were you? Where were you? But for the disciples, actually, the question it raises is not that one. The question it raises for the disciples is this one. What do you think you're doing? And that can be another question that we ask of the Lord at times. What do you think you're doing? Verse 7, it says this. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. For Martha, the question to Jesus is, why didn't you come? For the disciples, it's, why are you going? Because going to Bethany means being very close to Jerusalem, which means being very close to danger. Why, Jesus, do you want to go back where it is dangerous? And so what we see here is that the sisters and the disciples, who all know, follow, believe in Jesus, have very different perspectives on what's going on. Martha's saying, why didn't you come? The disciples are saying, why are you going? 
And I think this is helpful for us when we pray and we don't feel that God is answering our prayers because there can be situations where you have believers all know, love, follow Jesus, but praying for completely opposite things. That's what's happening in this story. Martha is praying that Jesus will come and the disciples are praying that Jesus won't go. Our prayers can be like that. And that's why we trust in the sovereignty and the grace of God and we trust in his timing. We, don't, we, don't, we often don't see the whole picture. Neither Martha nor the disciples were seeing the whole picture. It was hidden from them at this point. But why would anybody go back into a danger zone? Why would anybody head into danger? We live in a very safe era of human history. We have extraordinary strict and effective health and safety rules. We, as far as possible, try and eliminate danger from all of life. But people do still head into danger. People who serve up, uh, sign up to serve in the, in, the, in the services, in the military or the police or the fire brigades, opt for danger. Or people who pursue extreme sports opt for danger. Now, why, why would you opt for danger rather than choose safety? It might be something as simple and, in a sense, selfish as the endorphin rush that you get from doing something dangerous. It might be a desire for some sense of renown, for fame, for glory, that you do something dangerous, people admire you. It, may, it can be something actually straightforward but wonderful, a sense of duty. You sign up to join the police service, then the dangerous thing happens, you don't back off, you go in. Why? Because that's what you signed up for. That's your duty, that's what you do. It's the job. And Jesus, by going to Bethany, is intentionally going towards danger. But the explanation he gives for this to the disciples feels a bit cryptic. And again, this can, might seem like a problem with Jesus. You ask him a straightforward question, and he gives a very cryptic answer. And so what he says to the disciples, why are you going, why are you going Lord? Why do you want to go back there? Jesus says, verse 9, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, what, what, what is that about? It's, it's, uh, Jesus is telling a, a proverb, a simple truth expressed in a pithy kind of way. What Jesus is saying is, if you, if you walk in the dark, you're more likely to trip over. And you can imagine the disciples saying, yeah, and? Never thought, wow, that's amazing, never thought of that before. If there's no light, you're more likely to fall over. I mean, it, how obvious can you be? Why does Jesus say this? What has it got to do with going back into the d- danger zone? And what's it got to do with Lazarus being dead? And it seems that Jesus' point, with what might seem a very cryptic proverb, Jesus' point is this, that God's will is the light. And if you walk in the will of God, then you won't stumble. And that means that walking in the light, walking in God's will, is a safer way to walk, even if it's walking you into what appears to be danger. And of course, it doesn't necessarily do away with the danger. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and it would be dangerous. It was going to mean him going to the cross. But him walking that way was walking in the light, walking in the way of God. And him raising Lazarus to life was part of that fulfilling walking in, being obedient to God's will. might ask the question, why? Why is it so significant that Jesus raises Lazarus? Why Lazarus? Yes, Jesus loved Lazarus, but Jesus loved other people, and there was no shortage of dead people. 
If Jesus wanted to raise somebody from the dead, he could have gone anywhere in Israel and found a dead person. There's, there's no shortage of dead people in the world. The world is stuffed full of dead people. So why Lazarus? Why Lazarus being raised from the dead? Why is that God's will? And it seems to be because this was the miracle that really is going to kind of rub Jesus' opponent's noses in it. It's this which is going to up the ante. It's this which is going to lead to the cross. So after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, it says in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the council. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, of course, that's the point. Everyone is meant to believe in Jesus. But they don't want that. And what the miracle, what the raising of Lazarus does is to force that question. And so what it does is to pave the way to Calvary. The raising of Lazarus makes the cross inevitable. And so Martha asked this question, why weren't you here? The disciples asked the question, why are you going? But the real question is, who do you think Jesus is? And how are you going to respond to him? That's the real question this story provokes. Now, there's so much we could learn and apply from this story, and I've read barely any of it. But where I feel we really need to focus is, is what Jesus says about walking in the light. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night they stumble, for they have no light. How do you find the light? How do you find God's will so you don't stumble? This brings us back to what it says at the beginning of John, in the prologue, the way that the Gospel of John is introduced. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is, this is the, the dilemma of the Gospel of John. Jesus and his claims. The one that John claims is the light of God, the one who makes the will of God known, the one who himself claimed when he started his ministry that he was the I am, that he was himself God, that he is the bread of life, that he is the one who pours out living water into those who come to him, that he does have all authority, that he is the true king, that he is great David's greatest son, that he is the rightful occupant of the throne of heaven. But the world did not recognize him. The Pharisees and teachers of the law did not recognize him. What this story does is force us to answer that question ourselves. Do we recognize Christ? Because that is the way to walk in the light. Follow him, recognize him. So much of our current cultural thinking, so much of our current kind of cultural pop psychology centers around actually what is just ancient heresy repackaged in a new form. In the first centuries of the Christian church, there was the heresies about the inner light. You need to discover and release the inner light, free the inner light from the corruption of, uh, of physical flesh. Our, our modern pop psychology is very like that. It's follow your heart. Follow the inner light. Look inside. As you look inside yourself, you'll find truth. You'll find the light. You'll find your the way. What this story does, what Jesus does, is to say, no. The way to really find light, the place to find true light is not in yourself, but it's in Jesus. If you're just looking inside, you're going to stumble. You're walking in the dark. If you want to walk in the light and not stumble, you need to look to Jesus. He's the true light who's come into the world. 
That's what this story forces us. That's a question it forces us to wrestle with. You, like Mary, like Martha, in your place, just like that place of Bethany, will you step into the love and the light of Christ? Because doing that is the way to step onto solid ground. It's the way to avoid stumbling. That even in the dangers we face in life, and even in the questions that we have about life and about God and about his timing, what's going on with our very partial knowledge and our only small picture view, the way not to stumble is to walk in the light. And the way to walk in the light is to follow Jesus. King Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts again to see your light. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who do feel that they're in that moment of stink, that there is that thing in their lives where just want to keep the gravestone capped on as tight as possible, not let the stink out. I pray that we might come to you in faith, uh, even now faith, that he stinketh faith, and allow you to roll the stone away and bring what seems to be dead into life. I pray that I pray that would happen in some situations, in some lives this morning, Jesus, there would be a, a coming to life where the, at the moment it feels like the stink of death. I pray, Lord, that we would know, experience, feel your love. Even in those moments of question, Martha, Jesus loves me, but he didn't come when I asked. I pray, Lord, that we would know that your love for us, personally, individually, meaningfully, deeply, intimately, is real. I pray that we'd... Step into that embrace of your love. And let us do your will, O God. Let us walk in the light. Let us not stumble about in the darkness. But keep us. Thank you, your word protects us and directs us. I pray that we'd be protected and directed by your word. We'd step into the light. We'd see Jesus and trust you. Every moment, every second, every situation. In your precious name we ask it, Lord. Amen.